David, we're here in New York uh, with the background noise, about to um, tomorrow meet together for the Isaac Bashevich Singer event at the New York Public Library, but this presented me with a great opportunity to talk to you about your newly published book, The Land of Happy Tears. Yes, hi. So, so welcome, and uh, I guess my first question is, how did you find your way to doing this kind of work? Um, well... I've been doing uh, what I guess I would call literary activism for a good um, 15 years or so, uh, working on bringing translations and and, uh, works from other languages and also sometimes from English um, into publication, into the spotlight, or at least into the the small spotlight. I've done that with with Hebrew literature, uh, some French literature, Russian literature. And the other side of it is my work with uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer and my Yiddish work, uh, which I started during my doctorate and then developed. And so those two kind of came together as an opportunity to do uh, this collection of children's tales. So one of the things that I was struck by when I was reading it is there are a lot of names which are names of Yiddish writers who are not associated with children's literature per se or I didn't think of in terms of being mm-hmm. writers of children's literature what's the sort of backstory to that and how interesting was it for you to explore and, and work with other translators on finding this work um, when I was kind of given the opportunity with, with doing a children's collection I went and, and just looked at everything you know, and and the first my first uh, my first stop was the Yiddish Book Center uh, page um, uh, of children's stories, and and so I just went through and read about one author after another. Meaning, I used that as a reference point to go through and just read one author and another author and another author and another author, and there were so many. Um, and as you know, and that wasn't also what I was looking to do. I wasn't trying to make some kind something encyclopedic or it's a kind of a huge anthology. Um, and so as I started researching authors, backgrounds, histories, um, I just, I, maybe naturally, just because of my own interests also, historical interests, I found myself focusing increasingly on the interwar period, and especially, um, the, let's say, the early post-World War I period, and even more specifically, uh, the Polish-Soviet War, which is is a war that's kind of off the radar for most people, and um, it's it's so off the radar that when when we were going through copy editing, one of the um, one of the questions that came up was someone had looked it up on Wikipedia, and it was called the Pol- the Russo-Polish War, and they wanted to change it to Russo-Polish War, and I said no, 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 this was not a this was a Soviet war, um, Soviet-Polish war. Um, and so, increasingly, I found myself interested in, in these stories because they were um, they had a particular intensity in them, and uh, not all of them are from that period or from there. Meaning, not all of them are, are exactly from there, but but they all share uh, that intensity. Um, and so, I think that, that the writers who are not known as children's writers brought that intensity with them to the children's literature, which is by the language it's clear that it's written for children by the format of the original Yiddish little booklets it's clear that 
children bought it and carried it around, it's just hard to believe the children read these stories because some of them are a little intense. They are, and then they sort of work um, on two different levels. I mean, I could see being a parent reading these to children, and there are there's sort of a couple of layers to each one of them. I guess one of my questions is, first, you mentioned that they came out as pamphlets. So can you just talk a little bit about physically what they were like and, and who they were intended for in terms of audience? Was there anything spectacular about them, or am I just imagining that they were pretty cool? They were, it's a little bit like um, the kind of chat books, which uh-huh. you might imagine. Um, I can say, let's say from my history or, or my personal history I started out doing these cartoon books as artist books Yeah. and uh, when I first came to New York um, I went to the St. Mark's bookstore and they had one of the most kind of intricate and, and, and large and um, uh, thorough or not thorough um, comprehensive yeah I guess comprehensive um, collections of consignment chapbooks and they were all zines and chapbooks it was it was huge it was a whole corner and there were booklets about the size of a, a little smaller than a pocketbook yeah stapled with two sides usually with two staples usually on the side saddle uh, saddles uh, saddle stitched or yeah. saddle stapled. stapled and um, and so a lot of these books are like that so they're in, you can imagine a kind of a chapbook they have no um, illustrations most of them. Some of them have on the cover. Not all. So you really have to, the children really have to use their imagination. Um, but you could, it, the size and the price also, <laughs> I don't remember what it is exactly, but um, the size and the price really give you the sense that these were widely distributed and also the amount of copies, not so many, but the, that, that there are enough copies across several libraries so you have them in at sometimes you'll find the same ones at Evo at the New York Public Library maybe uh, maybe at the National Library of Israel and sometimes they have different ones from the same authors which appear in some but not in others so were they serialized do you think? they were parts of series so there was the Kindle Bibliotheque for example or there was the I don't remember all, all of the titles off the, off the top of my head, but um, there were series. There's actually a book uh, by Naomi Pravrakedar, and her thesis was on the, the development of the Yiddish uh, children's press. And she, I would, I was asked about this also at the at the launch, um, and I just said go read that book because she really does an, a whole history of the press. It's pretty amazing. I don't remember the whole history off the top of my head, but. Um, I, when I was looking to try to understand, to put this in, in context, let's say for myself, not so much in terms of the collection and how it was presented, but for myself, I went to her book. And it had just been published. And, it, and that's also, I was, I would just say, that's part of all of the information and the research on um, what is sometimes called Yiddish children's literature, but sometimes called um, literature with children because it's, again, it's not really always, doesn't always feel children appropriate, child appropriate. Although I think that that is really an adult mistaken perspective on what children can or can't handle. Well, you know, there's a, 
there's a similar thing I think with cartoons. Um, growing up with you know Huckleberry Hound, but those were written on two levels. So so a parent could be watching a cartoon with a child. There's some things that are going to go over the head of the child, but they're going to keep the child interested and, and also entertain, if I may, the adult. But it was curious. I have, I have so many questions for you, David, but I visited a couple months ago with Miriam Udell, who's doing a lot with translation of children's books, and I asked her a little bit about the history of it and sort of the, evol- the evolution of children's literature. And she said something that I was quite taken by, that it kind of evolved simultaneously with Yiddish literature. There wasn't like a long history of one or the other because it was young enough that um, it evolved together. Well, so the, if you kind of, part of the history and part of the story is always the development of the Yiddish press. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yiddish publishing both uh, serial press and book press and in the Yiddish press which really flourished in, in, in Warsaw let's say in the, in the teens and twenties especially and early thirties um, that was kind of a reaction to what was happening in New York so the Yiddish press you could say sort of started in New York or really became very large in New York it peaked around 1917. So actually, although I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's what there was a there was a circulation of something like 800,000 generally of Yiddish press in New York um, in like 1917, and then it went down from there. But it was still in the hundreds of thousands for a long time. And so uh, in uh, in in Eastern Europe, there was so let's say mostly we'll say. Um, you know, Warsaw, Vilna, Krakow, Kiev, let's say, um, mostly. There was a response to that, and so people started uh, publishing there, both adult and children's materials. And there was also, so you had, and you had different um, streams, sort of. So you had the, they say, the socialist stream, you had the communist stream, you had the, um, the educational stream. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was doing research for this book, this is very, very, very interesting for me. That, um, and again, I, I keep saying for me because I, I had to do the historical research and yet create something that someone could enjoy without having to be interested in the history. And you, necessarily. I mean, I think you achieve that. You can read this book on its own. All the stories are totally. fine. I mean, I could sit down myself and read it, which I have, or with a child and read it, um, without the historical context, but I think that you obviously brought some of that into to bear in curating the stories. So that was, so for example, one of one of the, there's two women authors, which was very important for me to find and, and put in there, and uh, it wasn't so hard because these two specific women authors come up repeatedly in the different collections. These stories were like I said, there were clearly enough copies printed and distributed that they survived in several places. So that's already interesting. Um, and one of them was uh, Rochel Shabbat, Rachel Shabbat, and kind of talking to a couple of people and, and trying to understand. There, there was no mention of her uh, and understanding little by little that it was probably Regina Weinreich, 
Max Weinreich's uh, wife and also daughter of Tzemach Shabbat. Now, what was interesting about that is that we had this other writer, Sonia Kantor, who uh, was totally unknown, couldn't find anything on her. And I was at the time actually at Yivo and working and researching, and there was um, a doctoral student there uh, named Ayelet Brin, and she was working on male writers writing under female pseudonyms to try to get published. <laughs> and, um, and so I thought, well, maybe that's what's happening here, because I, I can't find any trace. And then I, I wrote to Eliezer Naborski and, and mentioned to him and asked him, and then he, being the ever resourceful master of, of all resourcefulness, sent me a link <laughs> to, to, to an archive uh, in Poland. And there I found the obituary for her, which Israel Rubin had written in uh, Dinaya Shul. And um, there I got the, the, one of the only sources of information about her as a person, as a writer. And it took me a while before I noticed that above her name on that page, on the obituary, was Tzadik Shabbat. Semach Shabbat, who had written an obituary for another person in the same exact issue. And so suddenly I'm looking at Semach Shabbat writing an obituary to get in the same issue as Israel Rubin, who is eulogizing Sonia Kantor, <laughs> and he's the father of Rachel Shabbat. And it just kind of, it was just this moment of, of okay, this was a world. It was a world, it was people who, even if they didn't know each other or did know each other, they were appearing together. Um, and so that was a very powerful moment for me. And, and, it, and it showed how both prolific people were and also how, um, how they worked across genres and across different outlets, essentially. And now some of these are writers whose names are familiar for writing, I don't want to use the word adult, but, you know, literature, not necessarily stories that were primarily for children. Um, and again, were, do you have any sense if these were written early in their career, mid-career, or just that they happened to write for both audiences? I mean, I imagine... I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, really. I, I imagine that um, there's... Well, I can say my sense of it is that there's, there's a strong pedagogical aspect to all of them. So everybody was aware of needing to create a literature for the children who knew Yiddish. And who else are you going to go to? Um, and maybe that's part of what makes it um, a little grittier. Than, than what we might expect. Although I think you see that in, in contemporary situations too, and I think that Bashevis is another example among many um, who discovered the form of children's literature or literature for children. I like just I've, I've came to think of it as for myself as, as uh, um, really literature for young readers. Well, yeah, it's funny because when I was reading it, I also you know everybody talks about. Juvenile fiction, which is sort of a newish term. I don't remember growing up with it, but maybe I'm dating myself. Um, 
But, yeah, again, it's interesting. It's like, I don't, I, I'm, in this conversation, I keep wanting to resist using children's literature because it's good storytelling. Well, there's a, there's a collection um, that was edited uh, by Gennady Estreich, amongst others, et al. It was, it was a collection that was based on a conference on literature for children or children's literature or ch- literature of children. And, um, and that was, he, when I met with him and spoke, spoke with him about this, he, uh, Gennady Estreich, he told me that, um, that even the title of how to call it was, was a question for them. And, and that's why they called it, again, I don't remember exactly, but it was something like literature of children or for children, but not children's literature, which, or literature with children. Um, that said, clearly the language is different. So, so I think that that, when editing these works and trying to understand what goes in, what doesn't go in, and how, and, and, and asking the question, is this for children, is this not for children? Um, is this appropriate? Is not appropriate? And asking myself that question, a lot of the times I would go to the language, and I would say to myself, "Yes, adults can read this, but the language is clearly different than the adult works, and 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 more accessible." Yeah, I mean, and it's. I think it's safe to say that it's also these stories are layered. I mean, there, there's, an, there's a lesson, for lack of a better word, to be gleaned from all of them. And I also think that they would, if I were reading them to children, I would imagine they'd prompt a conversation about something that is germane to each one of them. I, I think the lessons, I hope the lessons, are not always clear. And which means that there's space for questions. Which is good storytelling. Yeah. And also, when it is clear or when it is kind of... Uh, when There are a couple of moments where the message comes really strong at the end in some of the stories. I think that it's a way of, of giving sort of a narrative resolution. Mm-hmm. But, but anybody who's... who's reading carefully regardless of age is still going to wonder about what what needed resolution mm-hmm. why do I need this resolution what what be, what felt unresolved until this moment and so it raises those questions in us and and that's our chance which is interesting because I'm listening to you talk through that, I think, okay, well then there's a very Jewish construct to it. Definitely. That's the other part of, of this collection that you know, how, how Jewish-ish <laughs> does something have to be to be Jewish? Um, and, and I think there's some parts that are more, some parts that are less. Clearly there's, a, there's an Eliyahu moment in one of the stories um, there are shtetl moments, but but in, in a story like uh, Broken In, which for me is one of the most powerful stories, it's uh, you get this image of 
and you get an image of, of a child who grows up in, in a village far away from other Jews. He lives with non-Jewish kids, other kind of probably Ukrainian peasants mm-hmm. and villagers together. He goes out to the fields, etc. And then he becomes five years old and he has to be sent to Cheder. And that means going to live with his uncle, going to live in a bigger place, which is a shtetl, right? That's a bigger place. And and he has to leave his mother, leave his parents, but especially his mother, who takes him there. And it's a heart-rending story. I mean, I, there's an audiobook which was made of this, and I was listening to it, and I just... <laughs> bawling in the middle of the story you know and, and I know the story relatively well um, and and yet what is powerful for me of the story is not that moment it's not the sad tragedy of leaving family which is real it's the last scene where the kid kind of goes out plays with the other kids and, and three days later he's He's in the Jewish context, and so it's extremely sad, but it's not a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And there's something very Jewishly sobering about that. I think so, and, I, I, and backing up to what you said earlier, I don't think that there's anything overtly Jewish about them. I mean, you could read them and have a takeaway. Again, I think that they would prompt conversations with a kid, which that to me is Jewish. I mean, the conversations, I always think of that with my father and my mother, mm-hmm. that, that that was that was part of our life. And, right. you know, um, so anyway, um, all that said, I, I think it's a really strong collection of stories. It can be read on so many levels, but you definitely can find that thread that has its, its roots in Jewishness and Jewish storytelling and... And what we ask of storytellers. Yeah, and I, and I think with this collection specifically, in addition to the Jewish part of it, is the Yiddish part of it. Mm-hmm. And people who, who grew up in America 100 years ago, Jews, they say, I speak Jewish. Right. They don't say I speak Yiddish, right. they say I speak Jewish. Um, but for me, the, the important part was to present Jewish culture, let's say, or Jewish cultural production in its Yiddish form, in translation, obviously. But there was a question, should we call this Jewish tales? Um, And I I really insisted, I said, this is a whole different story. Yes, it's Jewish, but this is Yiddish literature. These stories are part of the history of Yiddish literature, which is Jewish, and it's something else. And, And I think that what I tried to also kind of bring out in the in the introduction, but but what comes out in the stories themselves is that there is something about Yiddish culture, language, literature, thought that is about resilience. And that was the element, not the tragic element but the resilient element. That was the element that I really wanted to bring out and to try to give people a chance to connect to Yiddish literature from another angle. Well, I would say that as a reader, I think you did the 
really successfully, and I thank you for it. I also, um, you know, I don't always necessarily read an introduction, but your introduction, it really hit me because I could understand sort of what the why of how what you did and, and what you were trying to convey, and it was something that again I could imagine sharing with somebody younger, older. I guess it doesn't really matter. That begins to to lay lay the foundation for understanding or at least opening up um, what this is all about. So we have to end and also need to get you out of here so that you can get ready for tomorrow night's totally. uh, big, uh, big event. So the name of the book is? In the Land of Happy Tears, Yiddish Tales for Modern Times. And it's how many stories in the? 18 stories. Eight stories. Um, and and, and it's, it also actually, there's also a, uh, an audio book with some amazing narrators, including um, um, Tony Roberts. Wow. Which is really exciting. Wow. Yeah, and, and others. And uh, George Guidal is on there, and um, just really some, some great, great narrators. And, um, and yeah, there we go. Well, thank you, and thank you for introducing all of us to this work. Um, it's great. Keep translating. Um, take care. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Sylvia Peterson, Education Program Manager at the Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to Episode 69, Aaron Lansky's 2013 conversation with Mark Cohen, biographer of the late, great comedian Alan Sherman. Until next time, be well, be healthy, sei gesund.